So go ahead, beloved, and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 44. I want us to look tonight, Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. And um, this is really sort of the climax to the section that we began back in chapter 43 and verse 22. So let's read these words together and then we'll pray and we'll get into this text tonight and see what it is that the Lord has for us. Um, These are the words of God. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Let's pray together. Father, it is always a a blessed moment. A holy moment, Lord, when we open up your word and when we seek you in it, Lord, and we're dependent upon you and upon just the moving of your spirit in our midst, Lord God, to open up your word to us and to open us up to your word. I pray, Father God, that um, your grace would rest upon us in such a way that um, these words would have a firm purchase in our hearts tonight. God, as we consider everything that you're saying here, the promises that you make to these, this remnant that's in exile and what those promises mean to us as a remnant in exile today. Um, help us, Lord God, to draw the appropriate lines. Help us to see and to understand the greatness of your glory and to revel in the fact that, Lord, you are sovereign over all things. You are the ultimate authority in every instance that nothing that man says or can do, nothing that man predicts, Lord, none of it amounts to anything. Because you alone, you alone are from first to last. And so uh, just bless us, Lord God, as we draw near to you tonight and make your truth known to our hearts, I pray. In Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen. Amen. So again, this is kind of the climax, if you will, to the section that started back in 43 and verse 22. And And I just want to remind you of what we've seen throughout this section, what we've seen described, the implications that sort of come out of the of the things that the 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 doctrine that we've been taught here so far. Right. We've seen, first of all, we've seen described the way that Israel and Judah had forgotten God, how collectively as a nation they had forgotten God. They had rebelled against him. They had refused to honor the covenant that he made with them, that they had just become recalcitrant you know, children, they had become just, you know, they, they gave evidence that uh, their their faith was an outward thing only like they were they were clearly in in 
you know, deliberate rebellion against God. We saw how they refused to worship and honor him as they should, and rather gave their allegiance to idols, right? Idols of their own making, idols of the nations that were around them, idols that they remembered from their time in Egypt, you know, idols everywhere, right? They, they, we, we saw how they were in dire need of redemption and rescue, right, from this exile that was imposed upon them by God as a consequence of their sins. They could not deliver themselves. They had no power. They ceased, really, for a time to exist as a sovereign nation, right? They were, they were, they were gone, right? And so, on top of that, we realized how desperate they were for God to move, right? And so then we see how God keeps His faithfulness and His promise of redemption to them. How He gives to them the promise that He will pour out His Spirit upon them and bring new life where there was only death. We see how He promises how the Lord will extol His glory as the one true God, right? As the rock of their salvation. And we see His condemnation. We saw so powerfully you know, displayed last week you know, his condemnation of the folly of idolatry. So this section has been doctrinally and devotionally a very rich section, right, of Scripture. And now we come sort of to the apex of this section. Before we get into the prophecy next week that, that concerns Cyrus, which is just mind-blowing anyway, right? But we'll get into that next week, okay? But it serves, this section that we're looking at tonight serves as sort of a summary of everything that God has promised. And it begins with, it begins with a very important call, okay? And that very important call is to remember and to return, okay? To remember and to return. I want you to look again at verses 21 and 22 with me. Look at it again and read them. He says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I am have redeemed you. Now, in these two verses, I want you to see like the, the central commands here of the Lord are to remember and to return. Okay, the first thing he says, I want you to remember these things. Well, what are the things that he's talking about? What does that mean? Well, the things of which the Lord are, is speaking here are, are the things that, you know, we just talked about, right? the things that have been described in this section, all right? But let me expand on that a little bit. This remnant that's in exile they really needed to remember that they were created to be the servants of God and not the servants of their imaginary gods, right? They needed to remember that God had formed them for His glory and not for their own, okay? And not for the glory of those kings that conquered them, right? They were created for His glory. And they needed to be reminded, they needed to remember that they must be redeemed by God because of their sin. In other words, God must do something on their behalf. There's no erasing sin apart from the sovereign work of Almighty God. And they needed to remember that God had made a pledge of forgiveness and new life and that His promises are certain because He's the one true God, right? Within the immediate context, Right? They needed to remember that while the idolaters were busy fashioning their idols, Israel had been fashioned by God. Right? They needed to remember that while the idolater is bound to his idol, Israel was bound to the Lord. Right? They needed to be remember that the idolaters prayed 
really pathetically, if you will, to their idols. Oh, save me. You are my God, right? But to Israel, God says, I have redeemed you. They would remember all those things. Now, what do we mean when we talk about remembering? It's important that we understand the heart of what that means in Scripture. To remember in Scripture means far more than to just recall to mind some facts or to bring to memory something that just slipped your mind, you know? Like if I'm on my way home and I remember, oh, I was supposed to stop at the food line and get bread, right? And then I turn around, right, and go back and get the bread. That's not, that's not the idea of remembering in Scripture. The idea of remembering in Scripture is really a call to action. It's, it's a call to, to recollect what you know to be true, what's been proven to be true. It's, it's a call to consider the weight of what you know. And then... Not just to have it in your mind, but but to actually respond to that truth, to act on it, to live in light of that truth, to fashion your life around it. And that's what the exiles in Babylon were being called to do, right? To remember the character of the Lord, to remember his proclaimed truth, to remember his unfailing promises, and to return to him with an undivided heart. That's the key thing here. An undivided heart, right? To trust Him and to ask Him to do all that He had promised to do. But to do it without doubting. Here's the issue with Israel. And here's the issue with Judah. And this is just, this is one of the huge issues of them. A divided heart had always plagued them, hadn't it? That was one of the big issues with the people. There had always been this divided heart. I mean, how long does it take before they get to the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses is up on the mountain before they're like, hey, when's this Moses cat coming back? Like, it doesn't seem like he's coming back. Somebody needs to make us a god so we can have some worship down here, right? They're always, they're played with this divided heart. And that, that's, you know, that was what led to their instability. Remember what James says, Right? When he's talking about praying, he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. You finish it. Unstable in all his ways, right? They were to return to the Lord. They were to stop being double-minded. They were to trust him, right? They were to do so wholeheartedly, to walk in faith and not in doubt, so they would not be tossed to and fro any longer, right? And then there's the central promise. The central promise is that God had blotted out their transgressions and their sins like a cloud or a mist. Okay? In other words... The cloud of sin that was between God and His people, the mist of sin that was between God and His people had been lifted, okay? It had been blown away, if you will. It had been, God was not going to impute their sin to them anymore because He had redeemed them. Now, I want you to see here, there are two things in view. They're related, but they're not the same, okay? They're related, but they are not the same, okay? First of all, look, They needed to be physically redeemed, right? I mean, they couldn't just stay in Babylon forever. The nation of Israel had to be reconstituted in order for the Messiah to come, correct? 
So they couldn't stay in Babylon forever. They needed to be redeemed physically or politically or however you want to state it from their exile in Babylon. But they also needed spiritual salvation, didn't they? And the two are different, but they are connected, right? On the one hand, think about it. God had promised to redeem them from their exile. That's a mighty feat. And, I mean, that's a mighty feat by itself, that God could, could rescue a helpless people from the clutches of, at that time, one of the greatest, you know, most powerful nations that the world had seen. Of course, you know, give it a few years and that, that's not true anymore, right? But, but that would have been a mighty feat in and of itself. But physical redemption for the remnant, listen, that would mean nothing if they were not also delivered spiritually, correct? Okay, so you get your life back in, in, in the old land. Well, well, wonderful. If your life is still in opposition to God, you get another however many years till you turn 70 or 80, and then you're dead and in hell, right? So there needed to be spiritual salvation, right? The Lord had done for them here. He says, he, he says, I've done for you what you could not do. And he speaks his words as, as if they are already accomplished. Look again at verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Okay? We'll talk about physical deliverance here in a second when we get to the latter part of the text. But the greater deliverance here is, is what God talks about, that spiritual deliverance that he accomplished for them, right? He had blotted out their transgressions and their sins. He had redeemed them from their slavery to idolatry and sin. How did he do that? How is that accomplished? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Christ is the, is the lamb offered from the foundation of the world, Right? And so men in the Old Testament, women in the Old Testament, sinners in the Old Testament, they are saved in the same way, beloved, that you and I are, by grace through faith. The only difference is, they were saved by grace through faith in a promise yet to be revealed. And we're saved by grace through a promise, that, through the promise that has been fully revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so, you know, physical deliverance that was going to occur for, for the nation of Israel, that was, that was just... That was a necessary picture, but just a picture, right? It's important that we see that clearly because there are people who get it wrong. And, and they have this belief, well, in the Old Testament, people are saved by, you know, keeping the law. If that's the case, nobody in the Old Testament was saved. Any more than we are saved by keeping the law. You realize that? Like nobody kept the law in the Old Testament. There's nobody that we hold up as going, wow, what a great law keeper that guy was. Even Moses, right? Nobody's a law keeper. They're not saved. We, they were not saved in the Old Testament. Some people say this, that God saved them through judgment and discipline. It's judgment and discipline that saved them, as if they endured in their body the penalty for their sins and therefore were saved. No, no, no. For them to endure in their body the penalty of their sins, they would have all needed to be crucified. That's not how it's accomplished. Salvation is not accomplished by, by judgment and, and by discipline. They're instruments. Clearly, they're instruments that lead to the salvation of these guys, but they're not the means. They're not the means. Nor are any human efforts, not even a newfound obedience to the Lord. There's one guy that, that well, I'm not even going to mention his name because he's such a whack theologian, but he talks about how, you know, you know yes, God understands how before, you know, they came to faith in him and really trusted him that, 
all of their sins, all the sins that they committed, but God just turns a blind eye to that, and He only counts their lives from the moment of faith. And then, therefore, they're redeemed by, you know, their newfound obedience to the Lord. (laughs) Talk about being like, I don't know how you get the title of theologian with that bad a theology. Really. They're going to be redeemed by grace through faith in the Lord's coming Messiah, and their obedience is the fruit of that faith, right? It's Christ that saves them. It's grace by faith that saves them. The obedience is the fruit, right? That's the fruit. Their repentance, their returning, that's the fruit of faith in God's Word. And there's one more thing I want you to say, see here that's so important. I want you to notice what the Lord says to the remnant in exile, because it's beautiful. He says, you will not be forgotten by me. If there's probably anybody on the planet that felt forgotten at this time, it was these guys. No, really. I mean, think about that for a moment, right? I mean, that would have been the natural fear of the remnant in exile, wouldn't it? That God had forgotten us. That, that, that here we are on our own. That, that, that we're, we're left to fend for ourselves. And, and we can't do it, right? And God is so gracious to assuage their fears while they're in Babylon. So gracious to, to comfort their anxieties. They're not on their own. Even if the circumstances seem that way, they are not on their own. Right? And it's good that he says this before he mentions Cyrus. Because think about it, right? What, what comfort would you have as the slave of one nation to know that Cyrus and another nation are going to come conquer them? It's not like, woohoo, great. You're swapping out one tyrant for another, right? He gives him promise. He gives him comfort. I'm not going to forget you. You will not be forgotten by me. He's faithful, Lord is. The Lord is. He's faithful to work all things together for their good. He's faithful to demonstrate his fidelity and his reliability to his people. He delights to do it, right? So remember in return, God has not forgotten you. Remember what God has done to redeem you and return to Him in repentance and faith because He's your God and He remembers you even if you or or your forefathers forgot Him. That's the idea. And that was the word of the remnant. And you know what? Here's the truth. When we think about it, that's a pretty fitting word for us, isn't it? Remember. Well, why, why do we need to remember? Well, I'll tell you why. Because our eyes and our ears are constantly bombarded. Are they not? With lies about the Lord Jesus Christ. With temptations to distrust God or mistrust Him and His Word. With arguments, you know, that that seek to undermine the Gospel. With ideas, you know, even from, unfortunately, men in the pulpit that try to undermine the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His Word. You know, with these attractive sort of alternatives. Read idols, right? Right? to trust and serve them. And you know what? We will be overtaken by those things unless we remain on guard and continue to remember what we know. And that's why, beloved, I'm going to tell you what, living in the Scripture, making your home in the Word of God, reading and studying and Committing to memory the truth of the Word of God. That is why that is so essential. Because it alone is full of the greatness and the glory and the faithfulness of God. That's why you've got to be people of the book, man. 
As soon as you stop being a, you know, as soon as we stop being a people of the book, when any church stops being a people of the book, they stop being a people of God. That's facts. I won't give a plug nickel to somebody who thinks they can stand firm unless they rest the weight of their lives upon the firm foundation of God's word. Remember, it's a good word for us, right? Likewise, the word return. That's a good word too, isn't it? I mean, listen, none of us walks perfectly with the Lord, right? Right? We're justified sinners, but we are what? Still sinners nonetheless, right? And we're going to need a great deal of, we're going to need to go through a great deal of repenting and, and forgiveness on our way to heaven, are we not? Of course we are. And the good news of God's grace in Christ is that repentance and return are always available to His people. To His people, right? Though we sin, it's God's grace that holds us fast. Though we sin, it's His conviction and discipline that drives us back to Him. It's His love that receives the prodigal. Praise God. His faithfulness and His justice grant us forgiveness, right? It's at the heart, isn't it, of what the Apostle says in his first epistle? I love these words. They're great. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's not encouragement to sin. He's not like saying, hey, if you confess to God, He forgives, just go ahead and send it up. That's not what He's saying. I'm writing you these things that you say may not, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not was, is. And God doesn't forget His people. He can't. Thank God. <laughs> Man, we are exiles and strangers in this present Babylon, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every morning when I get up, I, I should just stop reading the news, but every morning when I get up and read my news feed, I realize, like, this world is not my home. You know, like, I'm glad this, this world has an expiration date. I am. I'm grateful, right? And even in the midst of this, God doesn't forget us. Right? Later on, when we get to Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16, he's going to say this of his remnant, of his people. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Man, I love that. I love that. Remember and return. That's the word to the remnant, right? And the word to creation is what? Rejoice. Look what he says in verse 23. I love it. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. I want you to think about what a contrast this is to the very beginning, actually, of this book. Look at this, right? I want you to see the great contrast here. Okay? I want you to see the great contrast here. Where at the beginning of this book, all of creation is called to witness against Israel and Judah's sin. Right? Look at it. It's in Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. 
For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Then he goes on and just, you know, well, let's just read one more verse. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged, right? What a change in providence. To these, to these words right here, right? Now it's all about witnessing her redemption, isn't it? Not their sin, witnessing Israel's redemption. And notice that this song is fittingly, fittingly focused entirely on who? The Lord himself, right? On his glory. Because he's the source and the strength of salvation and redemption. No, no glory belongs to Ju- Israel and Judah, right? For their rebellion that led to this, right? Just as no glory belongs to us in our redemption. They gave no help to God in what he does, just as we don't, right? The Lord has done it all. He alone redeems and saves. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, look, salvation is of the Lord. I cannot find in Scripture any other doctrine than this. It is the essence of the Bible. Yes. Amen. And so this rejoicing, right? It's like the rejoicing of all of creation at the work of redemption that God does. It's a preview of Romans chapter 8, right? And then the Lord turns to the specifics of his physical rescue of the nation of Israel. And we know not all of Israel is is spiritual Israel, right? Not everyone who returned from the exile is truly saved. We know that, right? But specifically, he talks here about their redemption from exile so that they might be a nation yet again, right? And that's vital, right? Again, because of the promise of the Messiah. So look at it with me, starting in verse 24, and then we'll just say a few things about it. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer... Who formed you from the womb? I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. We have right here, beloved, is the Lord's coup de grace. His death blow to idolatry. That's what this is. And to any question of his sovereign authority. And notice how he does this. First, the Lord states his place as Redeemer, right? Based upon his power and his authority as Creator, right? He can redeem and he alone can redeem because he is the Creator, right? And he's made everything that exists. He stretched out the heavens, you know, alone and he made the earth by himself, right? He made and he fashioned the nation of Israel by his own power, right? God keeps going back, or Isaiah does, or God through Isaiah keeps going back to this theme of of his place as creator, doesn't he, right? I mean, we see this continually through this book. Like, that's a really important, oft-repeated theme. And the reason why, beloved, is because it's essential to understanding, to a proper understanding of the world, 
That God is the maker of all things is an expansive statement. He did it all, he says, by myself. In other words, this deals the death blow to the lie of evolution and its red-headed stepsister, theistic evolution, and all that other garbage, right? It deals a death blow to, to all of these ideas that somehow God needed help or assistance. God needs nothing external to himself. I'm going to say that again. God needs nothing external to himself. He is the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate actor. He's the one of ultimate significance, right? He's the only true God. And that's why he refers here to these, the, the false prophets of these various idols. Remember we saw the witnesses last week? They're witnesses. It's why he refers to the false prophets of the various idols as liars. That their signs and their portents are themselves just lies and falsehoods, right? It's why he can make a fool out of those who claim the power of divination, right? Some spiritual insight and understanding to which they alone have access and over which they think they have power. I think about, for you young people, you're not going to remember this woman, but I remember Jean Dixon. This woman that would make all these crazy, like, you know, predictions. Some of them she got right. You know, some of them she got right. Like, she predicted that, that Kennedy would be elected and, and killed while he was in office. She got that right. You know? She got a lot wrong. You know? And she thought she had a handle on it, man. I don't know what she had. Demonic something. Right? But God makes a mockery of diviners because they're speaking out of ignorance and partial truths. And they're just dupes for demonic agency. He mocks the wise men of the age who claim a special wisdom, a special knowledge and discernment, and he turns them back and he turns them into fools, right? All their supposed wisdom, all their declarations of what is to come. You know what they really are? They're just empty stabs in the dark. That's what they are. They have as much chance of getting something right as I do of hitting a bullseye blindfolded. I might actually have a better shot. And it's not hard to draw the line to our own age, is it? I mean, how many pundits have declared the end of Christianity? The end of the, the demise of the church, right? You know, John Lennon did. We're bigger than, we're bigger than Jesus. It didn't turn out so well for him. Think about all the pundits that you know, extol the ascent of man. I don't know if you've seen this guy, but there's a guy named Yuval Harari. Okay? He's a spokesman for the World Economic Forum. If you don't know anything about the World Economic Forum, you better get educated. Because it'll tell you exactly what this whole world is heading towards and what they want, they want to accomplish. Okay? But he speaks of how, I could not believe this, I'm watching him. And he's talking about how mankind is now a hackable organism. You know, like you can hack computers, you can now hack men. You can hack mankind. And he says how we're now in the age of transhumanism and through technology and the meshing of technology with the organism, you know, we're going to be able to solve all of mankind's ills. He talks glowingly about artificial intelligence, which (laughs) I wouldn't be so high on that stuff. 
But he talks about how artificial intelligence is the savior of humanity. How through AI, we're going to be able to write a new Bible that will be accurate and true. Love it's accurate and true religion now. When people have been, you know, groping in the dark for so long, right? All these visions of, you know, the works of our hands and human philosophy and technology, all these visions of a new future of an exalted human race and some utopia on earth. He goes on and on and on about it. He's the false prophet for Weff. But he's not alone, right? He's not alone. And you know what? Here's the truth. They may, in fact, achieve some success in creating transhumans, quote-unquote. But the only thing they're going to create is an abomination to God. Technology and human philosophy are not our savior. And they're really only a rejection of the sovereign authority of God when they're taken to this extreme. They're fools. They are fools. I don't care how smart they are. They are fools. Bro, that's kind of a harsh statement. Well, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Maybe an even more foolish statement is, I am God. Because that's what they think they are. By contrast, it's pretty great to see that the Lord confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Isn't that awesome? The Lord confirms. That's a word in, in Hebrew that means to authorize or to approve or to endorse or to verify the words of his servants. Why? Because they speak the word that he has given to them, right? And that he's given to us in the scripture, in the divine, divine authoritative, sufficient, and inalterable truth, right? God always confirms his word. He fulfills the counsel of his messengers. That's a very important statement. Don't miss that. Not all are his messengers, right? He fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Not everybody speaks for God, but those he's called and sent. Those to whom he's given his word, right? Jeremiah, in fact, spoke of the false prophets in Judah leading up to the Babylonian captivity. And here's, you know, speaking through him, here's what God had to say about those guys. He says to Judah, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you, Yuval Harari. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned them, those words would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Now look, man. That's not unique in history, right? There are false prophets everywhere and in every age. True or false? True. True. Faithful prophets are hard to find. And it's true of all, all ages. But specifically here, the Lord is speaking about the trustworthiness of His Word through Isaiah. And the way He confirms it. And through Isaiah, what did the Lord declare? Well, look, in, starting in the middle of verse 26. He declared of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, 
And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now think about the word that God had given to Isaiah. Okay, Again, 175 years or so in advance. He gave the word that Jerusalem would be inhabited yet again. That the cities of Judah that had been devastated, not by just by Babylon, but by Assyria before them, right, would be rebuilt from the ruins. That he would dry up the rivers. Okay, the, that, the first reference here, the first aspect of it is the promise that God would oversee the safe return of Israel to the promised land, like he did when he first brought them there by drying up the Red Sea, the deep first, and then drying up the river Jordan to get them there, right? But there's a second aspect, and we'll see that in a second. The promise that the foundation of the temple would be laid and that he would do all of this by using a pagan king named Cyrus. I just want you to think about this for a moment, okay? Just want you to think about this for a moment. The people of the world, okay? Anybody who heard this would never have believed that Jerusalem and the temple would be rebuilt after what the Babylonians did to them. They are thoroughly destroyed. They would have rejected the possibility that a repopulated Judah, think about this now, would be rebuilt by the descendants of those that Nebuchadnezzar took prisoner. They could never have conceived... That the Jews would be liberated by a non-Israelite pagan like Cyrus. And that all those things came to pass. Even more, Cyrus is called by name more than 175 years before he exists. The only place God exceeds that is when he declares the coming of Josiah about 300 years before he does, saying that he'll burn the bones of those false prophets on the fires that they've created. That is a remarkable thought. The, Lord's, the Lord is going to use a pagan king, an idolater, to accomplish his own purpose. He's going to do all these things that seem absolutely impossible. That ought to be breathtaking. That ought to make us go, whoa. This confirmation, it's a confirmation really of the Lord as creator and sovereign and, and ruler of all things, isn't it? And rescuer of his people. In fact, notice that the Lord calls Cyrus my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. There's a little bit of irony here. The title shepherd had traditionally been used of the Davidic kings. Right? And we know how those guys turned out. And the fact that the Lord uses it here of a pagan monarch shows that he would use a pagan to fulfill his wishes since the Davidic kings had proven unreliable. Now, I want us to understand this, okay? Because it doesn't, that God uses Cyrus here as an instrument for the good of his people doesn't mean that Cyrus was saved. Nor does it mean that God approved of his lifestyle. He was still a pagan idolater until the day that he died, Okay? But God's use of a pagan king to accomplish the deliverance of his people is a stunning testimony to his sovereignty, is it not? It's proof positive of of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Sure does. Sure does. 
that this pagan king will fulfill so precisely exactly what God announces over 175 years in advance is proof that God alone is God, isn't it? I mean, it really is. In fact, here are some things that are particularly interesting that I was blown away about when I was studying that, or, well, studying this week. But I read this today. The Jewish historian Josephus, you know, recorded that Cyrus actually read Isaiah's prophecy. And Daniel read it to him. And, you know, he heard this prediction that he himself would send the Israelites back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and that he desired to do that very thing. As a result, Josephus says that when he read these words, quote, he was seized by a desire to fulfill what was written of him. And furthermore, as he read further in Isaiah and read of his future victories, it apparently caused him to be emboldened in his military aspirations. How about that? Moreover, get this now. So the story goes. Herodotus talks about this. In, in addition to Josephus, that when he read that God would dry up the rivers, okay, that he read that, here's the second aspect that you know, I spoke about from that, the drying up of the rivers, that it led him to make a tactical decision to overthrow Babylon by diverting the Euphrates River from under the Babylonian walls and then to use the riverbed to storm the city. I don't know if that was like God saying that's how you're going to do it or not, but wow, right? And then one last thing. And this is how precise the Lord's words are here. The prophet Ezra tells us that in the days of Cyrus, while he was king, that the rebuilding of the temple indeed did not progress beyond the laying of the foundations. Just as the Lord said in verse 28. So what's the big picture? Well, the big picture is God can be trusted, right? The big picture is that everything that the Lord gave Isaiah to speak and everything that God did obviously was necessary for the advent of the Messiah and for the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. But beyond that necessity, beloved, there's much in this section to strengthen and encourage our faith. Is there not? God is our creator. He forms us in the womb. He blesses His children. He makes us His servants. He redeems us from sin. He's the Lord of hosts who fights our battle. He is eternal, the first and the last. He's the only God. He's our rock. He is the sovereign and supreme ruler of all things. His word is the truth. He does not forget us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's the only true God and He's the only one in whom we can find what we truly need. And so you think about that and you realize how futile and how foolish to look anywhere else. We've got a couple minutes. Your thoughts, comments, anything? Yes, Pete. So it just came to mind as like it, it seemed like this really rings with uh, just as a, a kind of it, it, it rhymes with everything that says in Psalms one fifteen, 
um, where he says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does that. He does all that he pleases. And it's amazing that, you know, you, it's like we, we're mounting up our own current Babylon around us. Yeah. And when we're told that that Babylon will be thrust down, but that Babylon is doing everything it can to, to send its spires as high up in the heaven, higher than the first power of Babel. Yeah. And yet, the sad thing is, is that <clears throat> these people are only damned by a sin that they won't repent of, and we're just as just as likely to be condemned should, had we not been had we not been saved. Had we not received grace, yeah, yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay, didn't believe a word he said. I know. But, but Cyrus. Cyrus. You know, believed everything that God said. Yeah. That is kind of ironic, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you're right. I. Oh, that we'd have to believe his word like Cyrus did. Yeah, I know, right? Cyrus reads like, okay, yeah, that's me. You know? I mean, that is kind of crazy when you think about it, right? And even like Josephus, and he's a pretty reliable historian. Like, when he's talking about how, you know, he actually read or had these words read to him and then he forms plans and military, you know, strategies and conquests and and and, and it's good to to the remnants of, of Israel. Like it is remarkable that he actually hears that and goes, Yeah, okay. And he's he's a lost man. He's a pagan he's a pagan idolater till the day he dies. And yet Wow. Right? Yeah. That's good. I think it's so cool is that Daniel, I mean, when you think about his life and what he went through, and yet he was faithful to read that yeah. to the king. Yeah. The courage that took Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Very true. That's a historical account, but I mean, you know, hopefully it's true. I mean, it seems like it is. I mean, Josephus is, again, pretty reliable. So is Herodotus. They're pretty reliable dudes as far as history goes. So, so is, is there any. I'm seeing odd tie ins to Revelation, I think it's 21, where the New Jerusalem is formed. You know, New Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem will be built. You know, the church will be built. The saved people of God, the foundation of the temple. You know, but I remember in, in those messages you were talking about, well, there's, there's no temple in that Jerusalem because we are, are the temple. in direct face-to-face with It you. is the temple. It is the temple. So. Yeah. All right, let's pray. And, um, and then let's split into some groups, and we will pray. Mark, will you pray for us, man? Thanks, sir. <laughs> let's pray. Father God, we thank you tonight for looking at this redirection that you have to constantly do to your people. You're very young people, you redirect us in the old days, you did it personally, and in this time you do it through Christ. And the instruction you left for us to redirect our, our eyes back on your word and to live in it and stand in it and bathe in it and renew our minds in it and wash our hearts in it and found our whole life and every decision, every thought, and every action in your word. So thank you for giving us this at this time instead of facing your wrath because of it, Father, directly, like these examples we see and um, you and you alone are 
are amazing. And um, you can be trusted. You are our creator. You redeemed us. You redeemed us, Father. You had that plan in place before we you created the very earth we stand on. And so I just pray that we would we would be spiritually disciplined enough to redirect our thoughts back on you, to redirect ourselves back on scripture. It's all there. Yep. Everything we need is right there. Um, so you've been merciful, you've been kind, you've been so gracious and patient with us, and I thank you for that. I thank you for these that are gathered here and families they represent, and those that are unable to be here. I pray that your hand would be upon them and that you'd be with John as he drives home and, and with his calling. Just uh, solidify that in him, Father, and bless him with that. And, um, I do pray for all those that have been lifted up tonight and all those that are on the list, Father, that your will would predominate, that you would be glorified. No matter how we would define every situation, that you and you alone would be glorified as you are in everything, no matter what it is, you're glorified and rightly so. And help us to be cooperative instruments in that regard, tools in your hand that, that will cooperate with your will. And just celebrate, celebrate your holiness and your righteousness, your perfection. I thank you for that. And I, and I pray, I know in um, even a small group of people, there's a multitude of unspoken requests and hopes and fears and dreams and plans and all the things that trouble us because we're made of dust. I just pray that we would be obedient to your word and that your will, your will would guide us no matter what. So um, bless us and keep us until we come back to worship the best day of the week on Sunday. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen.